So what does that look like to you? Is it an easy chair? Is it your favorite Starbucks in the morning? Is it arriving home from work on Friday and knowing that you've punched the clock for the last time for this week and if the place burns down, it's not your problem? What is contentment for you? I think Christmas is one of the least content times of the year. For a lot of reasons, but I think there are lots of things that happen around this season and things that we do around this season that breed discontent, that put us in a mindset that lacks for contentment. And so we thought during this holiday season, um, and I say we because this conversation about what we would do for Christmas probably was initiated by Mike Peterson back in July, I think, something like that. We started talking about Christmas, and we began to unpack what might happen and how we might go about the celebration of Christmas. And I had been thinking about this idea, and perhaps you've kind of caught a glimpse of it as we've been talking about holy discontent, and we've been talking about bringing our heart into alignment with God through thanksgiving, that we've kind of been building toward this idea, this, uh, this, this time this month when we will talk about contentment. Have you noticed that things have changed in the building a little bit? There's new writing on the walls. Um, I, I, I'm always fascinated when, I, uh, when a pastor comes to visit. I... Uh, I meet pastors here once in a while for things, and uh, as, the, as, as new pastors come in, they, they look around and, and they see the things that are written on the walls, and the, they always think the same thing. Every pastor I know who has come into our building on a, on a time when we have things on the walls always assumes that these were hand-painted by someone. And they say, wow, you guys must have a great sign painter in the church. And I say, aren't they great? And I always, I always kind of let it linger there just for a minute, just to, to let them think that until I reveal that, no, 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 this is all vinyl. It's easy on, easy off. And yeah, we have great people who do it. And uh, I want to thank JB and Sharon for making that happen this time. I don't know if they uh, enlist their uh, very talented daughters or not. But I do know that I say, I say to JB and Sharon, you know what I'd like on the back wall is something like this. And then I, they usually send me a, a, a picture or tell me what they're thinking about. And it's always more than I imagined. And so thank you for unwrapping contentment you, and for the, the statue that was going up. I just appreciate what you guys do. It is, the, it is a skill set that I don't have, so I appreciate it even more. So thank you. I want you to notice around you, um, something that JB pointed out to me I hadn't even thought about, and I'd, since, since you pointed it out, I did look, re- listen to Amy Grant's song with my wife. Um, the, do you know there's an Amy Grant song called Emmanuel? Yeah. If you're old enough, you've been listening to Christian music since the 80s, that's a, a, a song that was there. If you were a, a kid during the 80s or if you weren't born yet, well, you just missed it. It's on the Internet. You can go find it. It's out there, YouTube. You can look for the Amy Grant original because the other one's not that cool. But the, the words of the song are around you. Because the song says, Emmanuel, 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 the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God. 
Emmanuel. And so um, I, I, th- I think we'll have to start sort of make that a part of the playlist before church and after church, just so it can be playing in your head and you can be looking around and, and catching all the parts and pieces. So as we start this conversation about contentment, we're going to start on the idea that you can learn to be content. And that none of us starts out in our morning feeling content. Because when we talk about contentedness, it's usually an end-of-the-day experience, right? We kind of think of contentedness as when everything is done. Or we think of it like rising on Saturday morning for all of you, not for me or for Pastor Tim, but maybe for all of you on Sabbath morning. My wife's body clock changes on Sabbath morning. This is a woman who wakes up at 5 or 5.30 almost every morning. There are Sabbaths when she does not wake up till 8 o'clock. Her body knows it's Sabbath when her brain just calms down, settles down and says, okay, let the woman sleep. When you approach the idea of contentment, what images pass through your mind? What do you think about? In the early, in the early history of, of uh, the Greek and Roman philosophy, they had a group of people known as the Stoics. And the Stoics thought that they would arrive at contentment by lowering their expectations, by, by not caring about anything. And, the, and so the Stoic process was this. It, it, the idea was, first, your, your favorite cup, your drinking vessel gets broken, and you simply say, I don't care. And then your, your favorite pet, your, an animal, gets killed, and you say, I don't care. And then some relative of yours gets sick and you say, I don't care. And they said, if you get to saying, I don't care long enough, your, your, your most beloved friend can be murdered and you can walk away saying, I don't care. I don't think that's contentment. I think that's kind of weird. I think it's really weird, actually. If you don't care enough to be sad about one of your best friends losing their life, you're in trouble. You've gone a long way down a road to crazy land And you may have already arrived. So I'm not talking about stoicism here. This is not I'm content because I don't care. And I'm not talking about a a, a sort of uh, fatalistic, God is in charge, so okay. It's not not a resignment to to the facts of things. It's not not you just kind of sit back and say, there's nothing I can do about it, so whatever. Whatever's become kind of a watchword. We throw it out there all the time. Whatever. Whatever. And it's our way of saying, well, there's nothing I can do about it, right? We resign ourselves to the outcome of whatever. And we just throw it out there. We're not talking about that kind of, that kind of resigning yourself to a fatalistic future that you have no control of. We're not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a heart that's at rest because of faith. In a God who holds you in his hand. That's a big difference. It's coming to a moment where my anxiety starts to go away because of my faith. Where I begin to hand worry off to God and accept the fact that he has a great outcome planned, even though I can't see it. And so as we talk about contentment, I just want to start adjusting your thinking about it. And I want to start with this idea of learning to be content with the Apostle Paul. 
And I want to start with this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's one a lot of people know. Paul says of his, this thorn in his flesh, as he describes it, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He said, I had this thing that was killing me. Was, uh, I was suffering with it. It was a problem for me. And we don't know what it was. It seems to have been something physical. A lot of people assume it was, it was about his eyes because I don't know how, well you're, how familiar you are with the story of, of the Apostle Paul, but if you go to Acts chapter 9, you can kind of catch up on the backstory here. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He was a strong uh, proponent of Jewish faith. And as a result, when Christianity began to rise, Paul decided he was going to eliminate these people because they were, they were tearing down his faith. And so he went about the business of, of trying to get rid of all these Christians to try to get them out of the world. And so he was persecuting Christians, killing them, getting them hauled off into jail, causing all them all sorts of trouble. And one day he was on the road to Damascus. He was riding a horse, apparently. He was going along with some, some guards sent by the temple magistrates and they were on their way to Damascus and on their trip something happens to Paul as he's about to arrive to attack the church in Damascus he gets knocked off his horse by a bright light and a vision and he hears the voice of Jesus saying to him Saul his name was Saul God would change it to erase his his thinking about his past Saul Saul it's hard for you to kick against the pricks now that's the King James version so, so we don't think about what, we don't, we don't kick pricks a lot these days. But if you, if you stop and careful where your brain goes, and if you stop and think about it, for, it, it, what it's talking about is it's really hard to kick a thorn bush. Do you, people don't go around kicking the roses, right? Because it's hard. It, it's painful. And remember, most of these people wore sandals a lot. And so imagine kicking your rose bush with sandals on. So it's even harder then, right? So it's, he's saying it's hard to kick against something that pokes you back, that, that causes holes in your flesh. And he's saying, Paul, you're kicking against me and I am God. And immediately in that moment, Saul comes to a different conclusion. It's interesting what happens because he's blinded by this intense light and enlightened by this intense light. He lost his sight so that God might open his eyes. It's interesting how God goes about business, isn't it? He juxtaposes so many things in our world. You know, how you, you know how you learn to live eternally? You die a little bit day by day. Isn't that crazy? And you know how you learn to see, how Paul learned to see as God wanted him to see? He had to have his eyes closed. And so for a while, Paul is blinded, and he was later healed by a Christian who was reluctant missionary to go see Paul. He said, I won't go heal this guy. You, all I know about him is he does bad things to the people. If he's blind, if, great. And God said, no, I have called this man. Go and heal him. And he heals him. And we, we wondered. It's been sort of the, the, the assumptions of, of Christians over the decades, scholars and theologians, that perhaps something happened with Paul's eyes that they never fully recovered. And we get this because at the end of some of Paul's books, he writes personally, and he makes the note in, one, in a couple of places, look how large I'm writing, I'm writing this personally. So you think about it, if you had to write real big, you might have to write real big so you could see what you were writing. That's kind of a guess about what was going on. But three times he prays about whatever it is, asking that God will take it away. And here's this missionary church planter who's out there going around the world serving God, and God says to him, I'm not taking it away. No. Three times he prays, three times he gets a no. And yet Paul learned to be content. 
So this morning I want to start with learning to be content as our kind of our, our approach. Now, Christmas season does not always allow for contentment. I love this sign just because it's so general. Beware of, well, just beware. When you wander into the Christmas season, it is not about contentment, right? It's all about everything else. I like this picture. Do you see what that is? You see what's at the bottom. Do you see what's at the top? Anybody got a 12-year-old kid? Have you heard about this? Every 11-year-old, 12-year-old kid is like, everybody else has an iPhone, Mom. Why can't I have an iPhone, right? Why can't I have my own cell phone? The answer is, if you're 11 or 12, look at me, because you don't have one. And because you're not getting one. Deal with it. Parents of 11 and 12-year-olds, okay. And if you're 9, don't even ask. When you're 19, buy your own. Moving right along for the older set. I don't know how this goes, but they always have cars with bows on them in people's front yards. I have never seen that in my neighborhood. Has it happened in yours? I don't know. I don't know where the neighborhood where everybody gets a car at Christmas is. Somebody does, because they apparently, uh, someone told me to get a car and have that big bow put on it can cost, the bow can cost you two, three, four hundred bucks for a bow. You got to want to, man, you got to want to impress that girlfriend badly, right? And why is it always the, never mind. I like this one, because all the hangers are empty. Somebody's already been in this closet. Tried it all on at once, apparently. Can you see what that star of Bethlehem is being made by? Headlights. Anybody feeling content about their old beater car now? This Christmas, get on a plane. Go somewhere tropical. And then there's always these guys. And, it, you know, they, they bring the good news, the good news of Christmas. The holiday drinks are here. Those of you who have been waiting for pumpkin and spice latte, it's arrived. It is on scene at your local Starbucks, or six bucks, as Robin calls it. <laughs> the ads at Christmas seem to me to be aimed at building a discontented nature in me. They seem to be saying to me, add this to your list of things you need for Christmas. And I put need in there intentionally because we stopped talking about what we wanted and said, well, we need that. Or, or my, my least favorite word in recent advertisement is you deserve that. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, you, you deserve that. It started with McDonald's a long time ago. and They don't even know what they started. You deserve a break today. And that's become you deserve a Mercedes today. You deserve that. And it slowly builds discontent. There's actually a recent study that says children, little children, are influenced to ask their parents, and we knew this all along, are influenced to ask their parents for toys by what they see on television. All that stuff they're pumping out during the cartoons you thought your kids weren't paying attention to, guess what? That's how the Christmas list got built. Why are you nodding? 
Stop letting that kid watch TV, Ben. You're done. Until you're 19, you can buy your own TV. The idea is that, that Christmas has become the season of discontent. It's become this time when we're told, you need this, you need this, you need this. Hey, you need this. Hey, look at that, you need that. And the, and the holiday season is replete with commercials. These are just print ads. I mean, if we showed, we could watch commercials all day. The whole, all the things that they're telling us we need to have, we want. Well, you didn't know you wanted this, but you do now. You've been staring at that Starbucks latte for a while now, and some of you are beginning to say, yeah, you know, I haven't had one of those yet this holiday season. Hmm. Some of you know where every Starbucks in town is, and you've had several of these this season. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we're going to be in chapter 4 if you want to find it in your own Bible. It's chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, right in that vicinity. But I want to start with the fact that Paul has been in a Roman jail for a couple of years now. This is actually the site that people think is the, is the cell where the Apostle Paul and perhaps the Apostle Peter later were held by the Romans. This looks pretty, pretty nice and spiffy and clean, but you had to be lowered into this cell through a hole in the top. There is no toilet. Notice? It used to be a cistern. You know what a cistern is for? Collecting the water that rains. And so water from the streets and other things that ran on the streets had come, would come down into this cell. The, the Romans didn't actually have imprisonment as a normal part of the judicial process. It wasn't like you, you, know, you, you got a traffic ticket and you went to jail. It wasn't like you had a minor offense and you spent some time in jail. In fact, you were usually only being held in jail until they could execute you. It was just, it was just a, a place, a holding tank. And yet the Apostle Paul set, spent between four and six years in Roman jails, first in Caesarea and then this one in Rome. He's writing from the cell in Rome to the Philippians. So in context, remember the context when you read the words. He's writing from that cell probably, full of, all the things you can imagine that might be in there. He's dependent on his friends to bring him clothing to keep him warm. They very rarely let them cut their hair or shave because a blade was a risky thing for them to have. Once in a, a blue moon, they would get a bath. Once a year, maybe, they would allow them to cut their hair. And so the Apostle Paul's conditions are pretty deplorable. And he's writing to the Philippians because they've sent him some help. They actually sent someone to him. Now imagine you're the guy who's been sent to help Paul out. So you get to go in here and help him every once in a while. Bring him food. Bring him clothes. Help him out. I have experienced times of need, you think? And times of abundance. Now stop for a second and remember who Paul was before he ended up a Christian missionary. 
Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a leader among the Jewish people, probably fairly well-to-do, probably uh, the upper middle class or the upper class within the Jewish communities. He was a highly respected man whose peers thought highly of him, whose, whose, whose community and culture thought highly of him, and now he's here. He's known abundance and he's known need. I have experienced times of need and of abundance. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. When somebody tells you they're going to tell you a secret, does it perk your ear up? Most anybody in the world, if you can communicate that phrase to them, I'm going to tell you a secret, will stop and listen. Right? I'm going to tell you a secret. People are like, okay. There are shows. I hate these shows on TV. They promise to tell you a secret. And then they take an hour of your time, and the secret wasn't worth five minutes. You know, oh, here, they're building up the secret for this. this year. Oh, yeah. Oh. And then they get to the end, and you're like, ah, I wasted an hour to learn that. And then you just feel like a sucker. Then you just feel like somebody is, you know, it's just they stuck it to you, and now they're twisting the knife. Because the next they say, next week we have a new secret. Maybe that one will be better. Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. Two things I want to point out in this sentence. It can be learned. And it's not normally in your head. Right? It can be learned. And it's a secret. It's information that isn't normally out there. You're not normally going to fall upon this idea on your own. It's a secret. And it's it's. Something that can be learned. You're not probably going to come across it on your own, but what's the big secret? What's he going to say? Here he goes. Back to capital, to, to Second Corinthians chapter 12. A thorn in the flesh was given me, a messenger from Satan to trouble me so that I would not become arrogant. I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart from me. Does he sound content at this point? Uh-uh. If you're asking God for help and he's not answering the way you want, are you usually going, oh, well, that's cool. Let me go hit my chair. Yeah, that, I'm good with that. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very pleased with that no. Is that where you spend your time when you're getting a no? I, I'm pretty sure it isn't true because I have talked to you some. We, we sit back in our class and this subject usually comes up about once a month where we talk about what, when God, what about when God isn't answering the way you want him to? A good vending machine, when you put three quarters in it, dispenses what you poke the button for, right? D11. It says 75 cents. I want my my, my Snickers right now. And if the Snickers get stuck, people will go crazy kicking machines over 75 cents. Grown people, people of some means will try sticking their hand inside a machine to try to get their 75 cent Snickers out. And here's God, and you, you, you dispense the coins that you thought were appropriate, and, and you, you didn't get what you wanted. Look, God, it says, ask, believe, claim. So I asked, and I believed, and now I'm claiming. And Paul's three times asking God to heal. Look, I am traveling the world for you. I am teaching everybody I come in contact about Jesus. Step up. Ever feel like you needed to tell God to step up? Now, a lot of us are a little nervous with that phrase, but I think the, the, the emotion rises up in us. And you might as well say it when emotion rises up because he already knows. And then he can get a chance to say to you, calm down. 
Step up, calm down. The no was no, but then there's a but. You see that? The no was a no, three times. But he starts the next sentence with but. But he said to me, my grace is enough for you. No, I'm not going to heal you, Paul, but my grace is enough to deal with even this. My grace is enough for you. No, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, but my grace is not gone because I'm not doing what you want me to do. My presence, my, my direction, my help for you is not gone because I didn't do what you wanted me to do. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Don't you want to see what's in my package? I, I can leave here. Someone said no. My power is made perfect in your weakness. But... He said to me, my grace is enough for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. So then, are you watching the phrases? But then, Paul says, I will boast most gladly about my weakness. Okay, back this up. I asked three times for an answer and he said, don't worry about it. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness so I said, cool. So I said, I'm okay with it then. If your power is made perfect in my weakness, I will sit here in my weakness and embrace it. What changed? What changed? Information. The apostle got new information. His life to this point had been in a certain place. And now he got new information. This is a compass. It's a very cool compass. I actually wish it was mine. Don't tell that to Isaac Peterson. I don't want him to feel bad that I'm coveting his compass. Do you know what a compass is? We talked about this last year. Do you know what a compass is? A compass is an orientation device. You know what that means? You know, what you, you know, if you're in the mall, if you're not used to using compasses, I'll give you a great picture of this. If you're in the mall and you go to the sign, you're looking for C's candy, which is usually what I'm looking for in the mall, and, you, and you're looking for C's candy and it's on the list and it says it's in C12. You're like, C12, C12. Now you're looking on the map. Oh, there's C12. You know what you're looking for next? A little thing that says you are here. You know what that is? That's an orientation device. That tells you where you are. Now you can plan the trip to get where you want to be. You see, what happened with Paul was he had asked God three times, can you please take this away from me? God said, no, 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 I can't do that. Not now, Paul. Not, not at the present. I'm not going to take this away from you because my power will be made better. My power will be more significant in your life, in your weakness, than it will be in your strength. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, oh, if that's the way I need to think, let me reorient this compass and change my direction. Because my focus had been on getting rid of whatever was bothering me. And Paul says, no, you know what I need? I need to recognize 
I have, I have heard good counsel and go in a different direction. Wonderful counselor. The one who would come, God with us, Emmanuel, the one who would be here, the one who would be the ruler, who would take leadership and rulership, Isaiah chapter 9 in this planet, is called Wonderful Counselor. You know what he did with Paul? He gave him counsel. He didn't give him a yes. He reoriented his direction. He helped change his choice. Do you know how often my prayers are actually an opportunity for God to change my orientation? Not to answer yes. Very regularly when I get a no or a wait, it's because God is desiring to change the orientation of my path. Because I have a plan for my yes. Don't you? You have a plan for your yes. And Paul had a plan for his yes. Lord, once I am done with this, I will be so much more efficient, so much better. I'll be able to do this and this and this. And then I'll go to there and I'll, 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 I will conquer the world. And God said, wait, calm down. You tend to get a little ahead of yourself. My power is made perfect in weakness, so I'm not going to take that away. It's the only thing that's keeping you from becoming so arrogant no one in the world can stand you. So we're not taking that away. But my power is made perfect when you understand your weakness. And so he just simply took a new compass heading from God and headed that direction. You know what repentance means, right? This is like a small repentance along the road to Jesus. This is not a full change your direction, go in the opposite direction. This is a, I wandered off the past and I got corrected back to it. That's that kind of compass correction. Paul was headed toward Jesus. He was trying to follow Jesus, but he had gotten in his mind that he, he, he was in control. He had kicked the Greyhound driver out of his seat, jumped in, started jamming the gears and headed for Reno. And God said, we're not going to Reno, buddy. Keep your quarters. We're headed to Sacramento. Or we're headed to Modesto. Or we're headed to Dallas. And Paul simply had to make a course correction because the wonderful counselor came and gave him counsel. You get it? What's the answer to Paul's questions? How do I find contentment? Where is my contentment to be found? It's to be found in Jesus. It's when I know the all-sufficiency of Jesus, when my eyes are aware of that, when I'm open to that, then I begin to understand that I can rest in Him. That's the ultimate in contentment. I, I choose my weakness so that the power of Christ may reside in me. You want to sit back in your, in your spiritual easy chair, put your feet up, and relax from here to glory? Let the power of Christ reside in you. Relax. You know, salvation is compared to Sabbath because it's about resting in Jesus. The snow turned on the lights. You understand that? If Paul got a yes, he doesn't get these lights on. If Paul got a yes, he goes off in Paul's direction, Paul's choice, Paul's decision. But because he got to know, he was open to hear the voice of God say, my power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. And he said, all right. If that's the case, bring on your power. I'll accept my weakness. 
I am content with weakness. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. I'm content with weakness. Because it's never been about my power. It's always been His. I am content with weakness. Because I figured out that I can trust Him. I've learned the secret of contentment. Whether I go satisfied or hungry, have plenty or nothing, I am able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. I can't fly though yet. (laughs) You know, all the years I've been walking past that step, I've only fallen like twice. God's power made perfect in weakness. So Paul then says, I've learned whether I've got a lot or I have a little, whether I have strength or whether I am weak, it doesn't matter because in Christ I can do all things. My roots go down into Him. My life is built on Him. And my heart overflows with thankfulness because I begin to understand that it's been Him all along. That it's never not been Him. When I thought I was the one doing it, I was never the one doing it. When I thought I was really empowered and really cool about what what was going on, it was never really about me. It's always been Jesus. Now, can 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 I stop you for a sec? Because the modern world says, earn more, do more, become more, develop more, strive for more, do this, do that, do the other, and you'll be better, you'll be stronger, you'll have more, you'll love it. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to you having drive and, and having direction and making decisions about your future and, pra- and, and planning and practicing and working. I'm not, I'm not opposed to any of that. But I'm, a, I'm opposed to that taking the place of Jesus. If ever my plans supersede my dependence on Jesus, that's when I'm in trouble. If ever my 401k becomes my only retirement plan and I forget that my ultimate retirement paves street with my 401k. If I forget where I am bound, I can get caught up on where I am and forget who I am. And more importantly, whose I am. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. So, are you in need of a compass? This Christmas, are you like me in need of a little bit of a compass adjustment during the holiday season? Are are you needing to find where you are and where he wants you to be? And plan a new course. Because ultimately that's what Paul did. The secret to his contentment was not a yes. It was willingness to understand the no. Let's pray. Father, we've just begun to tap into what it means to trust you with this kind of all-encompassing 
faith. And so today, I pray for holy discontent so that I might be willing to hear the counsel that will lead to contentment. I pray that you would not allow any of us to rest in our own merit, to trust in our own ability so much that we forget it's always been about you. As we share the holiday, as we talk about it, as we enjoy it, as we buy gifts for one another, and as we exchange greetings, I ask that you will settle into our hearts in the reality and truth that you are truly all we need. You're what we need at work. You're what we need in our family. You're what we need at home. You're the only answer we have and the only answer we actually need. I pray that you will bless this church family. I pray that each person here today will be present when the gates of heaven open and we are invited home. I pray that not one child will miss it. Not one grandmother or grandfather. Not one person will miss that invitation home. And that you will implant in our hearts so deeply faith in you that come what may we can be content in Jesus name Amen